This week on the Elucidators Decoding Global News, we're digging into one of our very favorite topics, the future of nuclear weapons. As of this past weekend, 50 countries have ratified the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, a UN-backed effort to relegate nukes to the dustbin of history. But stuffing the nuclear genie back into its bottle won't be easy, especially with potential arms race brewing between the U.S., Russia, and China, and new entrants to the nuclear club, like North Korea, upping their warhead counts. Will we ever get to full disarmament? Should we even want to? Let's discuss. And remember, we love getting listener questions. So if you have anything you want to discuss, drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at theelucidators at gmail.com. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Howley. And with me, as per usual, is my co-host, Pete Newsom. My man, how you doing? My dude, I am doing pretty well. My brother, good to hear. <laughs> my compatriot. Yes, my podcasting companion and bosom buddy. Cool, man. So this week, I want to start with a little bit of housekeeping. We record on Tuesdays, and we're not going to record on Tuesday next week, Tuesday, November 3rd, because we are really confident that absolutely nothing important is going to happen all of that week. It's just not, it doesn't matter, and nothing's going on. There's nothing to see here, and we're not going to talk about it. So, no show next week. We'll be back the week following, right, Pete? Totally. Yeah, we've been waiting for a sort of a low news week to just take a little break. so A lull where nothing of political importance happens. And we figured that will start right around uh, Tuesday, November 3rd and last about a week. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> With that out of the way, what are we talking about this week, Pete? What's the sitch? Wow, Steve. This one is a big week. We're talking about nuclear weapons. Big week, big week, big week for yours truly. I did a master's in nuclear strategy, Pete. Woo! Dang, so I get Steve. to show off. Woo, now woo, you tell woo. me. Yeah. I thought you were an IR guy, but you have a master's in nuclear strategy? Okay, well, okay. no, I have a master's in IR, but I did a lot of <laughs> nuclear strategy. I wrote Word. a master's thesis in nuclear strategy. It was 13 years ago, so I don't remember that much, but... well. See if you can like find your old thesis and bring it up on your monitor while we talk. Dredge it up from the depths <clears throat> of yeah. Dropbox. Yeah, so a lot is going on as mm. far as uh, nuclear weapons in the world are concerned. There mm-hmm. is movement afoot in that realm. Saturday, or as of, I should say, Saturday, the 24th of October, 50 countries have now ratified a treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. Ooh. It is needed 50 countries, and Honduras joined the treaty to become the 50th country. Hondurans coming through. I like it. Absolutely, yeah. And what that means is that it passes into force as an international law. Okay, so no more nukes, right, Pete? We're done. Episode (laughs) over. I think so, man. Any final thoughts? That sounds great. Nukes are bad. And talk to you in two weeks. Nope, just kidding. All that's wrong. So 50 countries have ratified the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons, meaning that is under the rules of the United Nations, I suppose, it is in force as an international law. My understanding is that this was hammered out about three years ago in the General Assembly, right, Pete? That is correct. Yes. The thing about it is that it's non-binding for countries that don't sign it. Oh. That's sort of the headline about it. (laughs) Oh, international law is a bummer that way, you know? Turns out you can say, I'm not going to follow the law. That's that's the choice I'm making today. Yep, yep, sorry, nope. Yet three years ago, we had 120 UN member states, which is a lot of member states, about two-thirds, basically negotiate to figure out what this treaty was going to be. The treaty prohibits the use, threat of use, testing, development, production, possession, transfer, and stationing of nuclear weapons. Thankfully, it does not prohibit talking about nuclear weapons. Otherwise, otherwise, you'd be hearing a lot of this. 
Silence. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so far, my understanding is that 84 governments have signed the treaty, so more like 40% of the governments on Earth, meaning that the number of countries that have acceded to it will rise as more legislatures ratify it. So we're at 50 now, but we could be as high as 84 as time goes on and legislatures consider the treaty. This is true. But here's an important facet of this. Mm. None of the nine currently known nuclear weapons states, which include the US, the UK, France, China, Russia, Israel, North Korea, Pakistan, and India, have participated in either the negotiations or the ratification. Dude, bummer. Yeah, it would, it would be helpful to have them on board. Yeah, that would be really good. This kind of reminds me of Abraham Lincoln's 1862 Emancipation Proclamation. Me too. Yeah, no, it, it freed the slaves in states under rebellion, not in states that he had control over. <laughs> so, if, yeah, it ended up turning out well, of course. But yeah, a bunch of non-nuclear weapon states have gotten together and decided that nobody should have nuclear weapons. <laughs> Naturally, the, new, the nuclear weapon states don't agree with this. The US, UK, and France in 2017, when this thing started to get hammered out, issued the following statement. We do not intend to sign, ratify, or ever become party to it. And we also have this chestnut from the US State Department. The TPNW will not result in the elimination of a single nuclear weapon enhance the security of any state or contribute in any tangible way to peace and security in the geopolitical reality of the 21st century. Harsh. That just harshes my mellow, man. Pretty strong message of like, don't waste your time. Yeah. Methinks they doth protest too much. I mean, if this didn't matter at all, they wouldn't be saying stuff like this, right? That's an interesting take. Mm-hmm. It's a hot take. To be perfectly honest, I kind of hope you're right. On yeah. That. Well, it, we know that's true because the Trump administration has tried to get signatories to reverse their decision on this. And they, they've circulated a letter basically saying, look, we respect your right to sign this treaty, but we think that you've made a strategic error. Russia and China are building their nuclear arsenals as we speak. They're not going to unilaterally disarm. They're not even going to multilaterally disarm. So what we need in reality is... We need a trilateral arms control deal between the United States, Russia, and China. So Russia and the United States being the number one and number two nuclear powers in terms of numbers of warheads, and the US and China being the number one and number two economic powers in the world. And everybody else, like, it's not that they're not important, but they're a lot less important than these three countries. And whatever these three countries do you know, is going to affect the larger nuclear security environment a lot more than this pie-in-the-sky thing that will never really enter force, right? Absolutely, yeah. And in fact, most U.S. allies haven't even ratified this thing. They haven't, they haven't touched it, including Japan, the only country to ever suffer a nuclear attack. That's interesting. It is. The situation with Japan is very interesting because... They went from a U.S. enemy during World War II and the only country to have ever suffered a nuclear attack at the hands of the U.S. to being an ally of the U.S. that's protected under the U.S.'s nuclear umbrella. Exactly right. Now, the proponents of this treaty recognize this. They, they understand all this. They're not dumb people. Nevertheless, they say, hey, that's okay. We see this as a good starting point nonetheless. Because we have a lot of other bans in international law on other types of weapons that have actually been quite successful, including bans on biological and chemical weapons, landmines, cluster bombs, and other sort of nasty pieces of business like that. And the way that those bans work is by applying uh, like peer pressure. Exactly. It's basically the creation of a new norm or a new standard of behavior, which is to say landmines are still used mostly in civil conflicts in the developing world, but they're considered abhorrent. And this is as a result of a longstanding public relations campaign 
by NGOs and the United Nations mm-hmm. to eventually establish this norm and make it illegal under international law and actually give it some teeth. It takes a long time. I'm going to tip my hand here and say that my personal preference would be that nuclear weapons didn't exist. That would be cool. Yeah, I have to say here that they are in a different class from all these other biological, chemical weapons, landmines, etc. None of those can cause instantaneous annihilation. No, not in the same way. Biological weapons, mm. we don't really know like what that could cover. Something like the coronavirus, for instance, <laughs> which is not a biological weapon, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> importantly. That's a conspiracy theory. But you know, there could be very, very powerful biological weapons in theory that could be both contagious and deadly. Hasn't really happened yet. But even like the prospect of that is so abhorrent that we've kind of put the kibosh on it as a species. And again, the idea is to create a new norm. There is a a current norm that we do not use nuclear weapons against one another. And that has held up since 1945. And the idea of this treaty is to extend that norm, that standard of behavior, in terms of what practically every human being on Earth considers right and just and appropriate behavior. We want to extend that from use to possession. That's a big difference. (laughs) That's a very significant step. A big difference, yeah. Particularly because the idea is we need these nuclear weapons to deter others from using nuclear weapons against us. Mm -hmm. that is like the key attribute of having nukes. It's to make sure that nobody else uses nukes, which is paradoxical, but at the same time makes a lot of sense when you understand that countries fundamentally do not trust one another. And that the technology to make nuclear weapons exists and to put that back in the bottle would be difficult. Extremely difficult. It would entail mass amnesia. I'm not sure what it would entail, but... Yeah, something pretty unprecedented in the history of our species. So we want to create this new norm of non-possession. And Elaine White Gomez of Costa Rica, she's a Costa Rican diplomat who led the 2017 negotiations that created the TPNW, had this to say, this is a strong message. And I think it is a very strong message. And I think the fact that the Trump administration basically circulating a letter trying to get people to reverse their decision is a testament to that. But that's kind of all it is at the same time, a message, at least so far. Before we get there, though, perhaps we should begin at the beginning. Step one, which is figuring out what the deal is with nukes, arms control, and disarmament. Kind of in that order, right, Pete? (laughs) (laughs) That's how they unfolded in reality. So yeah. Yeah. So I'll just run through a brief history of the nuclear proliferation timeline. Obviously, we started with the United States in 1945, which you've already referenced, dropping dropping the bomb on two Japanese cities and horrifying the entire world, including people in the United States. We then had the USSR following suit in 1949, the UK in 1952, France 1960, and China in 1964. These are the so-called first five proliferators. They're also the five members of the UN Security Council. Perhaps not coincidental that all five would acquire nuclear weapons within a span of about 20 years. From there, we have India detonating a quote-unquote peaceful nuclear explosion in 1974. Now, this was not branded as a weapon. And believe it or not, back in the day, people used to think that you could set off what amounted to nuclear explosives for non-military reasons, and it would make sense. I mean, that caught me by surprise when I read it. Yeah. You actually clarified that some of the uses that they were considering for nuclear explosions included, like, digging tunnels. Mm Mm-hmm. Through mountains. (laughs) Yeah, and making big holes in the ground, which it's hard to argue against believing that nukes can make big holes in the ground. I mean, if if you need that. (laughs) Yeah. 
The problem is that all of that dirt has to go somewhere from the hole. And what it does is get blasted into the atmosphere and come down as radioactive fallout, which is what you really don't want. So I think... Hey, but on the plus side, you have a big old hole in the ground now. A big old radioactive hole (laughs) that you may not be able to use for a while. But if you need a radioactive hole, then yeah. No, it's perfect. Anyway, the Indians pulled one of these peaceful nuclear explosions in 1974. As far as I know, this was never done before or after this again. And it it seems likely that they were actually making a statement that they intended to develop nuclear weapons. I think it's kind of like, hey, we have this technology. Yeah, we can make this not so peaceful if we want to. From there, we go to Israel in 1986. Israel had a long-established nuclear program by this point. It had warheads. It had not done any testing, as far as anybody knows. And it certainly had not announced its nuclear program. It had the so-called bomb-in-the-basement policy. So it maintained ambiguity about whether or not they had nuclear weapons. They would only say that Israel would not be the first country to introduce nuclear weapons to the Middle East, which is kind of a clever way of like threatening people very carefully. However, a defector from their nuclear program revealed the presence of Israel's arsenal in 1986. And then it was common knowledge or a known thing from that point on. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was an open secret. Israel still has not admitted that it has nuclear weapons, but everybody in the entire world knows it. And I think that kind of suits them fine given their geopolitical situation. South Africa, this is an interesting one. The apartheid regime, the racist regime in South Africa fell in the early 90s and Nelson Mandela took over. And in 1991, South Africa, right around this time, had developed a few crude nuclear bombs that, again, it doesn't seem like they tested. There is one sort of incident in the late 80s, where a flash was detected off the South African coast, but it was never definitively traced to a nuclear explosion. Anyway, South Africa unilaterally disarmed and disbanded its program and joined the non-proliferation regime. That's pretty incredible. Is that the lone example of a country that had nuclear weapons backing away and completely getting rid of their arsenal? It is not. Uh, There are lots of other examples. (laughs) Wow. Why don't you just nuke my uh, line of curiosity here, buddy? (laughs) So it's it's actually a a great question. We had other countries like Argentina and Brazil not quite get to the point of having nukes, but having fairly advanced nuclear programs back away from actually creating bombs and joining the non-proliferation regime. And then we have a bunch of ex-Soviet republics. So your Ukraines, your Kazakhstans, your Kyrgyzstans, your Uzbekistans, all of these places where Soviet missiles and warheads were stored, you know, they gained custody of these Soviet weapons when the Soviet Union collapsed. And basically, the United States worked with Russia to secure those nuclear materials and repatriate them to Russia at the end of the Cold War. And that was a big, important job. (laughs) But we jumped all over it, and we actually pulled it off. So all those countries were offered just like, you know, a lot of aid, special deals Mm -hmm. with the Russians and the United States to be like, all right, why don't you go ahead and give those missiles to Russia, and we'll go from there. And they did, because they saw the writing on the wall, basically. It's like, we can't really do anything with these. We, We need money really bad. Yeah. So there are other examples. That's that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, in terms of indigenous programs. Yeah, I, I suppose maybe that's... I mean, I'm not going to pretend that's exactly what I meant by that, but it is interesting, like, th- those examples you just gave were of countries that had another country's missiles just happen to be placed there. South Africa, it sounds like, developed the capacity to make weapons mm-hmm. and then just shut it all down and gave the weapons away or destroyed them. They only had a handful and they were pretty crude. So it's not like they had what's called a secure second strike capability, meaning this is kind of like the gold standard of having nuclear weapons. You can survive 
somebody launching first and trying to destroy your arsenal and you have enough bombs left over to hit them back. So they'll never do it in the first place. Got it. And South Africa was not there. They were not there. And plus, they saw the writing on the wall again for the end of apartheid. And they were like, well, being racists, they were like, well, we don't want these bombs in the hands of the African National Congress. Wait, that that's interesting. But was it Mandela who inter, who like interceded, negotiated the uh, getting rid of their weapons? I don't think so. I think it was actually done before Mandela came to power, but I'm going to have to look that up after the show. And if that's wrong, <laughs> then we'll edit it out. <laughs> as is so often the case on this show, the magic of editing. It's not quite as powerful as nuclear weapons, but for podcasts, eh, it's right up there. That's South Africa. Then we have India and Pakistan in 1998. India had already had its peaceful nuclear explosion about 25 years prior to this. 1998 is a different situation. This is like, all right, we're not setting off a bomb in a ditch. We actually have missiles and multiple warheads. We, you know, this is the real deal. India and Pakistan test in the same year. First India goes, and then Pakistan goes. 1998. Was that the first indication that Pakistan gave that they had nuclear weapons? Mm, I think that was another one of these known unknowns. Mm, okay. So I think people suspected that they had been working on an arsenal throughout the 80s and 90s. It became a known known. It became a known known. And obviously, if India is testing, Pakistan needs to test immediately because they're rivals and enemies. And, you know, it has been argued that India got nukes um, originally because China had nukes and they have had a bad time of it historically and also in contemporary terms. <laughs> they're, they're not the best of friends at the moment. Now they're using like baseball bats with nails in them though. Yeah, right. At, at least they're keeping it there for now. Uh, they're brawling along the zone of control in the Himalayas. It's crazy. We've talked about it a few times on this show. But this is kind of how proliferation tends to go. It, it goes kind of in a geographic pattern whereby whoever your rival is is incentivized to get nukes once you do. And this has been part of the Iranian argument. You know, Iran is in a tough neighborhood stuck between India and Pakistan on the one side and Israel on the other side. So if you consider yourself a great power, it's like, what are you doing, you know? <laughs> And then finally, we have North Korea in 2006, and they had been working on it for something like 40 years. <laughs> it took them a really long time, but they got there. Looking back, I think some people say it could have been stopped if the U.S. had maybe stepped in a little earlier. The U.S. tried a number of times. We had the Clinton, W. Bush, and Obama administrations. Well, Obama, you're talking about, oh, hey, I'm talking about stopping North Korea from succeeding in developing nuclear weapons. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I think North Korea was not taken seriously until the 1990s whatsoever, particularly, you know, as the Soviet Union was collapsing because, you know, they were a Soviet client state and Chinese client state. China was very weak. The Soviets were strong. They propped up North Korea and then collapsed. North Korea underwent a famine in the early to mid-90s that killed, I, I think, a million or maybe more than that people. And so we were like, well, they have their hands full. But then they started to make threatening noises about withdrawing from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which we're going to talk about next, right? The one that, that was needed. Yeah, it was needed, and it came into force in 1970 after those first five Security Council members got their nukes, <laughs> perhaps not coincidentally. <laughs> we had the, the five Security Council members look around and be like, all right, we've all got our nukes. We don't want anybody else to have nukes. We won World War II. We run the world, right? And we're not the best of friends, certainly. Obviously, this is the height of the Cold War. But both the United States and Russia and everybody else had a real incentive to keep the nuclear club small. And so we have the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1970. This is supposed to freeze nuclear weapon states to those Security Council permanent members. 
while allowing others access to nuclear tech for power generation and research. So the idea is basically, we are going to pay off every other country in the world to join this treaty saying, we will not develop nuclear weapons. And in exchange, we're going to give them technology for reactors, for medical research and imaging. Radioactive materials could be used for so many different things. We're going to help them develop their nuclear technology infrastructure for everything other than weapons. Exactly. And we did that, a lot of that, building nuclear reactors all over the place. Yeah. Carrot and the stick. The carrot is new usable technology, useful technology. And I guess the stick is like, we're going to like militarily stop you from developing nuclear weapons if you try. Or at least sanction you, which is mostly what's happened. Another carrot aspect of this is that those nuclear weapon states were supposed to pursue total disarmament in good faith. So it's like, well, you know, we have a lot of nukes right now. We're in the middle of the Cold War. But over time, maybe we can reverse this process. And if you are a non-nuclear weapon state, this is definitely something you want to hear because you're at a permanent disadvantage, right? (laughs) At that point, your incentive is just like the fewer weapons that can destroy the world there are in the world, the better. Because I don't have any in the first place. Yeah, not that the expectation was that the United States would start nuking non-nuclear weapon states because that is against the norm of no first use. Sure, but it's hard for a nuclear explosion anywhere on the face of the earth to not affect the whole world. Yeah, that's certainly true, especially when you get into fallout and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea was all right, this is a temporary state of affairs. Maybe we can reverse this process and pursue disarmament. And for a while, this fiction had some plausibility because we had arms control, but that has stalled and we're going to get into that. Mm -hmm. Although we should note that there was success in reducing nuclear arsenals. For sure. uh, On the part of the US and Russia and I'm sure other countries as well. But those are the two countries that have the most nuclear warheads. And yeah, it could have spiraled way, way out of control in the opposite direction. They've reduced the number of warheads each country has. Yeah, and I would say that the NPT has mostly been successful in providing countries with the right incentives to not go nuclear in the first place. Mm -hmm. NPT, uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty. Yeah, the NPT. We set up that inspections regime, which has worked out pretty well, I think. Mm -hmm. They found those WMDs in Iraq and... (laughs) They sure didn't. Everything that should have happened after that happened. Yeah. Hans Blix, not coming through with the goods. But there are notable exceptions. India, Pakistan, and Israel never signed the NPT. And North Korea formally withdrew in 2003. They started to withdraw in the early 90s, <laughs> but completed the, the formal withdrawal withdrawal in 2003. Regarding disarmament, in the Cold War, movement towards disarmament started with just reverse, like slowing the growth of the Soviet and American arsenals, which were like growing out of control into mm-hmm. the high thousands and above even 10,000 warheads each. So both parties recognized that this was getting really pointlessly expensive because they were racing one another and just getting tired doing it. Neither could actually secure a strategic advantage against one another. They never got to the point where they would be able to conduct a disarming first strike with any confidence. So they were like, all right, let's come to the table and actually reverse this because we're not getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. So we had the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties or SALT treaties in the 1970s. And this was the first agreement between the USA and the Soviet Union to limit strategic missile forces, including anti-ballistic missile forces. And this is important because anti-ballistic missile forces, if you think about it, a shield works pretty darn well as an offensive weapon when you also have a sword, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because the idea is, remember, to conduct that disarming first strike. If you get close to a disarming first strike and the other side can only launch a fraction of its arsenals and you have some kind of effective defense, then maybe it will incentivize you 
to try for that first strike because you can pick off those remaining missiles. So from the SALT treaties, which were designed to put a ceiling on the size of those strategic arsenals, we moved to lowering that ceiling with the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaties, or the START agreements. And there was START 1 and 2 in the 1980s and 1990s. And here, the USA and the Soviet Union, and then Russia, agreed to cut warhead counts to 6,000 and then to 3,000. And this is deployed warheads. A lot cheaper. (laughs) I'm going to interject here. Cheaper, yes. And also, there's an aspect of like, the more warheads you have, the more potential there is for a catastrophe. And both countries certainly had that among the factors they were considering. It's like it's easier to manage 3,000 nukes than 10,000 with confidence. Yeah, and I would also say this deal let them point to progress in that clause of the non-proliferation treaty where the U.S. and the Soviet Union are supposed to pursue disarmament. They could say plausibly, hey, we're actually making progress, right? This is working out. We're going, you know, it's going to take a long time. We still have, you know, 3,000 deployed warheads, but that's a lot better than whatever it was at the height of the Cold War. Certainly. They could say it because it was true. It was true. The thing is that the Second START Treaty never quite got underway because the United States withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile aspect of these treaties in 2002 under the W. Bush administration. And they did this because they started to get concerned about Iranian and North Korean proliferation, the so-called rogue states. And of course, Iraq was a concern around this time too. And the idea was, we need this missile shield, these anti-ballistic missiles, to deal with these rogue state arsenals, which are very small to begin with. They're only ever going to launch a handful of warheads at us, so we're confident that we can use our shield and prevent them from doing that. It's an interesting interesting calculation because the real important thing to think about there is how Russia perceives. Exactly. (laughs) They didn't like it. (laughs) Right, and I mean... North Korea didn't demonstrate that they had a nuclear missile for the first time in, until 2006. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, no, they, they, they tested a warhead is what so they did. So in 2002, the U.S. could have done other things besides withdrawing from the ABM, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Sure. Yeah, so the, like the question that was raised is, why do you need a shield if you're not expecting to fight? right? Mm -hmm. Is the expectation that you're going to need to bully these countries? And if that's the expectation, why do you need to do that? Why shouldn't plain old deterrence, whereby we have thousands of warheads, be sufficient against an Iran or North Korea if we're not planning to invade them, for instance? And that's what Iran and North Korea wanted to know, too. So... (laughs) Yeah, it kind of doesn't wash, and it definitely didn't wash with either Russia or China. And so this stalls arms control between Russia and the United States until 2010, when we have the Obama administration, where we get new start. And here, the the United States and Russia have agreed to cut to 1,500 deployed warheads each. So cutting in half their arsenal. Half once again, and we're down to 1,500 Deployed warheads. Deployed, which is, that means they could have any number of warheads like sitting in warehouses, yeah, but not attached to missiles. Exactly. Yeah, like it would take some time to like kind of wheel those out and arm them, get them on missiles. It's still a problem that we have these warheads, but it's a less immediate problem as far as just wanton destruction goes. And the name of that treaty was New Start. New Start. And here's the deal that lasted, you know, 10 years. It expires early next year. Okay. Early 2021. It worked pretty well, didn't it? New Start. Yeah, it totally did. And as far as we know, the US and Russia have actually cut to this number of deployed warheads and they have gotten really good at sort of swapping information on warheads when they're moving in and out of storage. They've conducted inspections of those deployed arsenals. I think hundreds of inspections over the course of the last decade. 
So we, we've arrived at the present day where we have this treaty where 50 non-nuclear weapon states have passed international law forbidding th those states that agree to the treaty from having nuclear weapons. And we've reached a point where the United States and Russia have the lowest level of deployed warheads since the early Cold War. So it seems like everything's headed in the right direction, right, Pete? Like if we, if we continue on to current trajectories, we should hit zero sometime in the next, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years. <laughs> well, that is the trajectory. Yeah. Are you telling me it's not that simple? I feel like you're telling me it's not that simple. It's not that simple, Steve. Well, we just know that this is international relations. So that's just like, that's just the default. That's the default response. I'm afraid it's not that simple. And here's why. The prospects for full nuclear disarmament are frankly not very good. We've already heard that the United States and its allies have no intention of ever disarming <laughs> unilaterally <laughs> under, under the, the auspices of this new prohibition treaty. They're just like, no, this is a bad idea. We're not going to do it. It's dumb. And okay, so, so why is this? There's, there's three main reasons. First of all, you have a couple of states that are very much moving in the wrong direction. The, China, North Korea, and potentially Iran are, are not going towards zero. They're coming from zero to higher numbers. North Korea's main sort of thing that they do in the world these days is just be a nuclear state. That's arguably the only thing that they do, other than like counterfeit cigarettes and steal <laughs> Bitcoin. <laughs> there you go. And China, like they have... In terms of nuclear warheads, I think they have roughly 300 mm -hmm. uh, at this time. But, I mean, is their goal to acquire more? Is that what their actions suggest? Yeah, so they went for a really long time, like multiple decades, with a minimal deterrent of maybe 30 or 40 warheads because they were very poor and they did not think that the United States was coming to invade them. <laughs> mm -hmm. They had no capacity to fight the United States over Taiwan anyway. And, you know, they didn't think that the Indians were going to invade China either. They were allied to Russia for a long time. And then once they split from Russia, they, they felt that 40 warheads was probably enough to deter Russia, and they were right. Now, they're possibly the world's biggest economy, if not number one, they're number two. And they sort of have a number of nuclear weapons that, as you said earlier in conversation, befits a country of their economic stature. Yeah, and, and just the fact that they're getting into a lot more fights and being they're throwing their weight around all over the place. 300 warheads is what they're estimated to have currently. That is the number of a France or a United Kingdom, which are nowhere near as powerful as China and do not have anywhere near the level of sort of foreign policy and military activity of a China. So wouldn't be surprised to see them go up from 300. Yeah, Britain is focused on fisheries at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Not nuclear weapons. By contrast, China's at 300. Russia and China, or excuse me, Russia and the United States are estimated to be around 4,000 to 6,000 6, warheads all in. Sure, so Russia and the US are on a different tier, basically. Yeah. Because they started from a completely different place. Right. And China is less interested in arms control because it has an order of magnitude fewer warheads than either Russia or the United States. So they're like, yeah, okay, we'll do arms control. Why don't you come down to 300 warheads and we'll talk, right? <laughs> and the argument has been made that to a lot of countries, it turns out that having nuclear weapons at all or like increasing the number that they have is not an attractive prospect because it doesn't actually get you what one might think it gets you. Yeah. What it, what it really gets you is it gets you nu nuclear deterrence against other nuclear weapon states when you feel like you need to go cause trouble. <laughs> and that is a situation that China is in currently. But in order to achieve any actual objectives, you can never use a nuclear weapon for that. Like you have to use conventional weapons and 
it's it's solely a deterrent, not a useful tool. So why have 6,000 instead of 30 or 300? Well, you have 6,000 because the other guy has 6,000 and you have to step back very slowly because you don't trust the other guy. Anyway, this is why even Japan won't sign the TPNW. They, they won't agree to forego the, in their, in their case, the hosting of American nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. For this reason, they're threatened by China and North Korea. And Chief Cabinet Secretary Katsunobu Kato, who I guess is kind of the equivalent of Vice President of Japan, has remarked, we need to appropriately respond to the current security threats by maintaining or strengthening our deterrence. We have to be realistic about promoting nuclear disarmament. So again, it's this idea, it's like, look, we know that nuclear disarmament is a good goal and a nice idea, but our close neighbors aren't on the path of disarming, so. Yeah, that just leaves us open, <laughs> basically. And and to be clear, this is not a super super popular stance in Japan even now. This is this is fairly controversial. There's a sizable minority of Japanese that want to sign on to the TPNW and they want total disarmament for obvious reasons. There are some number of Japanese people who are still alive who survived mm-hmm. the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Yeah. And so they they really want Japan on board, but Japan is a very important US ally. And that alliance goes both ways. They feel that they need American protection, and one can understand why. Meanwhile, North Korea probably has 30 to 40 warheads, and they're growing it by 5 to 10 a year, it seems like. And they're just going to keep doing that until further notice, (laughs) is kind of what it seems like. (laughs) The Iranians, we've talked about the Iranian nuclear program. They've had some trouble with mysterious fires and explosions recently Uh in their enrichment facilities. But the way I'd characterize their position is that they're playing footsie with going nuclear they're they're kind of teasing and they're they're going around the outside and they're partially waiting to see what happens on November 3rd I'm sure they are yeah depending on what happens there they could make a series of decisions they see the benefit in being close but not quite there but even that is dangerous enough so that's one reason why uh, prospects for full full nuclear disarmament are not very good uh, we have some important countries that are, they're rearming. <laughs> yeah. And a second reason is that the United States and Russia are having some trouble restarting the arms control process. So they've gotten to a certain level and now they're kind of stuck. We have this New START Treaty, which mm-hmm. was signed in 2010, that has been very successful, but it's, it's expiring in a few months. It's expiring in a few months and it has a clause in it that says, it can be extended for five years easily. Like on the U.S. side, it doesn't require the president going back to the Senate to have it reauthorized. It can just That's be right. signed off on. Yeah, but the Trump administration did not want to do this and proposed a just a one-year extension, which Putin agreed to. And the Trump administration also extracted more concessions from Putin and, and Russia The idea is this new deal will freeze all warhead numbers, not just deployed warheads, if it goes through. So that's a very significant change, isn't it? Because in order to affirm that both sides had the numbers of warheads they were claiming, it would require allowing inspectors into like sensitive warhead storage facilities, which is, that's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And it has raised questions about how serious the Trump administration is about this or whether they're just looking to blow up New Start in, in, a, in a way that doesn't look like complete bad faith, but is kind of like hidden bad faith, right? It's a, it's a, it's a tidy excuse mm-hmm. it's like to suggest something that Russia is less likely to go for. That said, um, Russia just said they will go for it, right? They will go for it. Russia doesn't want to spend a lot of money right now. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. they're under pressure and, you know, they're probably not happy about this, but they're going to agree to it. For what it's worth, Biden is on record saying he will extend New Start five years, no strings attached, and kind of buy time to restart this process. 
So if, if Biden enters the White House, it could be that we just get that that clean extension and we go another five years. And if he doesn't, the best we can probably hope for is a one-year period of time for something else to be negotiated. Exactly. And look, this is better than the alternative of just having New Start expire with nothing there. Yeah, what's crazy about that possibility is that currently there's this infrastructure and framework where Russia has information about the US nuclear arsenal and you know what we're doing when we're moving warheads around and why the US has that same informa- information about Russia's nuclear program and that mutual knowledge of the adversary's arsenal and movements means that those two countries we don't have to speculate Russia doesn't have to speculate and that's valuable because speculation leads to miscalculation miscalculation yeah. preparing for worst case scenarios that maybe don't need to be prepared for and yeah when you're talking about things that can annihilate entire parts of the globe the less speculation and miscommunication the better that's well said thanks homie yeah this whole thing is about us talking (laughs) (laughs) so when i talk good i'm stoked you talk real good yeah we don't have a new treaty set up and there are plenty of issues standing in the way of a new comprehensive agreement to follow that new start i guess you could call it the new new start Mm. or maybe pre-start i don't know call it (laughs) intro (laughs) start again we have our position on anti-ballistic missile technology which the trump administration has said is non-negotiable you know we need that shield to deal with the north koreans and irans of the world debatable but that is the position and we have these interceptors these miss these missiles that hit other missiles just to interject here new start has been in place since 2010 right and the usa's anti-ballistic missile position has remained the same throughout that time. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. Russia's not, they're not happy about it. They're not happy <laughs> about it, but they just agreed to 10 years of an arms control treaty whilst the US held that ABM position. So they're willing to like work around that. Yeah, they have been thus far. Doesn't mean that they will stay that way necessar- necessarily. They're especially unhappy about anti-ballistic missile tech located in Eastern and Central Europe. Mm. The idea being, well, that stuff is in Poland, for instance, because we need to intercept missiles coming from Iran to hit, let's say, France. But those kill vehicles, yeah, the ABM missiles could could basically be repurposed to shoot down Russian missiles just as easily. There's also questions of tactical versus strategic nukes. So... To this point, we've been talking about strategic warheads, which are designed to kill cities. There's also the question of tactical nuclear weapons, which are smaller yields for use on the battlefield. I have a question for you, and I'll edit this out if you don't know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) So like, strategy would be involved in using what we're calling tactical nuclear weapons as well. Why did only missiles that can be aimed and used in the purpose of destroying entire cities, get the name strategic. Like, strategy is not isolated just to those particular weapons. So it, it is not. And I think the idea was basically, this is the most important aspect of this and is the aspect that causes everybody to take a step back. So it is the highest level of negotiation and thinking about how this technology is used. If you deploy forces on the battlefield, you should reasonably expect them to die. So it's a little bit different to use nuclear weapons against military forces in a tactical capacity during the course of a battle. And in fact, during the Cold War, NATO was outgunned in Europe. And if the Russians had invaded Germany through the Fulda Gap, They had way more tanks and way more troops than NATO did. So we had tactical nuclear weapons there for battlefield commanders to use. Wow. So those are just smaller warheads that blow up? Yeah, like much smaller. Smaller square 
area, but still they're nuclear. <laughs> like, yeah, they are nuclear. And there was always a question about whether tactical nuclear warfare would remain tactical, right? Because <laughs> Sure, those would be the ones you might worry about getting into the wrong hands. Yeah, your, your sort of nuclear mortars and nuclear rockets and stuff like that could be very nasty and obviously could do a lot of damage to cities too. But that's not what they were intended to do. They were intended to blow up tank formations. Yeah, so that's another point of contention. We still have tactical, tactical nuclear weapons, both sides do. And as you said earlier, Pete, verification of all warheads, not just the, the deployed ones, would be much more invasive. It would. It would require legal negotiation, I'm sure, that would last for a long time. Yeah, and, and just like, how can we be sure that we're seeing all of them, you know? Mm-hmm. There's the question of how China fits into all of this if at all. The Trump administration has said that they want to include China in a trilateral agreement, but neither Russia nor China are interested. Russia is not currently threatened by China. They're actually kind of allies against the United States. <laughs> so they're like, well, we don't, like, we don't care about that. China, of course, is coming from a low base. They have 300 to our four to 6,000. So our limitations make no sense whatsoever for it. Right. We have more than 10 times as many. Yeah. And and like this has led observers to believe that this is just a negotiating ploy. Like this is probably not in good faith, this request to do a trilateral deal. And people like John Bolton, who used to be the Trump administration's national security advisor, was against arms control in general. All of it. <laughs> He's not no longer in the administration. He got fired and wrote a book about how terrible it was. Mm. But, you know, the, the administration is still full of people who kind of feel the same way. It's like, we shouldn't agree to anything with anybody. Like, we should just do whatever we want and screw everybody else. So, again, we th like observers think that this could be a tactic to just undermine the idea of arms control in general. Just propose something that China certainly won't agree to. Yeah, and by doing that, stall further agreements with Russia. I will say I've read the opinion that the thing the U.S. should be most focused on is its posture towards China, like in, in the next, say, decade. The number one geopolitical thing the U.S. should be concerned with is that. So if New Start is stopped, is New Stopped, <laughs> if it's ended, then suddenly the U.S., is going to be putting a lot of resources like focus and financial resources into a new arms race with Russia. And I mean, my personal opinion is that that would just be terrible in the sense that the danger of an accidental nu nuclear strike just goes up when you have more nuclear missiles. But from the pragmatic standpoint of the US government, it's like they only have so much money they can spend it on preparing or addressing whatever they feel they need to address towards China, or they can get into a pointless arms race again with Russia after years of having reversed that trajectory. Totally. It's expensive it's and we need waste. that money. Yeah. It, it is a waste because Russia, they're kind of fading. Like they can still cause a lot of trouble as we've seen. But, you know, do we think that they're going to invade Europe and launch a disarming first strike against the United States? No, we don't. They don't really have that capacity anymore. China, on the other hand, much bigger deal, much bigger threat. So let's keep our powder dry for those guys. That's the argument, yeah. That, that's a good argument. <laughs> and then finally, like the United States and Russia, as we've kind of been alluding to, they're kind of moving in the wrong direction too, around the margins. So the Trump administration has proposed $1.7 trillion with a T, worth of nuclear arsenal modernization within New Start's limitations. So fewer warheads, sure, but fancier warheads, <laughs> basically. Fancier missiles, fancier missiles, better 1. missiles. 1.7 trillion when there's a limit on the total number of possible missiles. Correct. I think redoing warheads, because some of the warheads are pretty old. Not that we think that they wouldn't work, but you know, maybe it's time to redo them. Right, but if the limitations from New Start were lifted, then that $1.7 could skyrocket. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's over the course of multiple decades, but it's still a hefty chunk chunk of change. I mean, that's an extension of uh, pandemic benefits right there, right? <laughs> like a big one. For 100 years, yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe that's hyperbole, but it sure is that. Yeah, the first pandemic relief bill was $3 trillion, And I think that Pelosi... I think 2.9 of that went to Boeing? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. In any case, a lot of money. Meanwhile, Russia has demonstrated entirely new missile technology, hypersonic missile systems, which are apparently even faster and more elusive because they now feel a need to evade our ABM. Nuclear missiles that go faster than the speed of sound. Yes. Well, I think the missiles, the warheads certainly did before, but the missiles did not necessarily. The idea being a ballistic missile throws a warhead into orbit. And then the warhead kind of sails on a parabola and lands. Wait, I'm learning this in real time right now. The missile doesn't travel with the warhead all the way to the target? No, it just it just boosts it into space, basically. And then the warhead separates. And goes faster than it was when attached to the missile? Like it gains speed? Oh yeah, a lot of speed. Okay. It's, it's a lot less big than the missile. <laughs> Another way of saying that is smaller. <laughs> <Yeah. just> clown. <laughs> it's a lot smaller. <laughs> yeah, and, and harder to hit, right? But when missiles are in the boost phase and they're still attached to the rocket, they're a lot easier to mess with, basically, because they're slower and bigger. And so these new hypersonic missile systems are more evasive during the boost phase, I suppose. I think that they also involve cruise missiles, which is a shorter-range system that is actually maneuverable. Drone-style, remote Drone-style, tomahawk-style. You could launch these and steer them, and that is where the, the warhead st- stays attached to the missile. It's a different type of weapon system. Got it. Russia has also demonstrably cheated on the intermediate-range ballistic missile treaty, which was intended to kind of limit the arms race in and around Europe. And that's separate from New Start. It is. And they have just been flouting it. (laughs) So (laughs) that's not good on their part. Bad Putin. Bad. Bad Putin. Bad. That's the second big reason why we don't think full nuclear disarmament is going to happen anytime soon. The final reason is kind of an interesting one. And it's that not everybody agrees that full disarmament is a good idea. And I had to learn a lot about this before I actually came around to this point of view. And the idea being nuclear weapons are useful. In particular, they're a tremendously powerful deterrent. And some political scientists and historians have argued that they've basically ended great power war which is a very, very, very good thing, if it's true. The Cold War never went hot, is the argument. And if the Cold War had turned into World War III with conventional weapons, who knows how many people would have died. (laughs) Yeah. I've read the viewpoint that basically all political interaction since World War II has taken place with actually not very much regard for nuclear weapons. Like, Mm -hmm. the fact that countries came through World War II was enough to make them not want to have World War III. Like, nuclear weapons weren't even necessary for that. Yeah, that that is a a counter-argument. Basically, this this was over-determined, is the way that we put it in nerd circles. It's like, well, yeah, nukes on top of World War II, which was so destructive, it killed 30 to 50 million people, depending on how you count, that nobody ever wanted to do it again anyway. And mm-hmm. nukes are just icing on that cake. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah, but you can imagine a time will come when no one remembers World War II. That time is fairly soon. <laughs> the time's fairly soon. So that won't be the same level of deterrent to prevent World War III that it has been thus far. And at that point, you could make the argument that something that can cause monumental instantaneous destruction is a useful deterrent. Like, no country is going to send an army of 
thousands of guys with machine guns when nuclear weapons are on the table as a countermeasure. And look, there's there's a lot of arguments in and around that area. Not everybody agrees with this, uh, but I think it's fairly compelling. The bottom line is, with nuclear weapons, you have a tiny risk of truly incalculable damage. Without them, you have actually a pretty big risk of endless devastating violence, which is how I would characterize great power war. When your Russias and your Germanys and the United States all get together and fight with their navies and their armies and their mm-hmm. tanks and China gets involved and it's just like, you're going to get millions of deaths and this is going to happen every so often. And it's not great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is the way that history has gone up until World War II. Like you have political scientists and other hardcore nerds, mathematicians doing things like calculating the proportional number of people killed since World War II versus world population against the centuries prior and doing like a meta-analysis of of what they think nuclear weapons are good for in terms of lives saved. Mm -hmm. And you can buy that or not buy it. But I think the evidence is compelling. (laughs) <laughs> basically until until a nuclear war and then the formula suddenly has a lot more deaths in the like nuclear weapons exist column yeah that's that's a counter argument it's like even if it's one in ten thousand one in a hundred thousand chance of some event it's like you keep rolling the dice forever it will happen it could happen tomorrow you know <laughs> and then you have real problems that's how i personally feel in my core You are not alone in any way, shape, or form. Human error is sometimes the most relevant factor in everything. You can basically bank on it, and we have had several close calls during the Cold War and after the Cold War involving people looking at screens that appeared to show a first strike attack on the Soviet Union from the United States or vice versa, and wondering whether or not to turn the key to launch. So that's that's one piece of it. It's like the deterrent argument. This is actually a useful tool to limit violence, except when it's not. And then the other argument is that it's just impractical. So let's run this thought experiment. If all nuclear weapon states were to disarm and everybody is at zero nukes, mm-hmm. whoever then gets nukes first is going to be very strong indeed. <laughs> It'll be, they'll be in the same position that the United States was at the end of World War II. They will have a nuclear monopoly. And it is debatable as to what utility a nuclear monopoly actually affords a country. Some say that this is a big deal and you can use it. Other people say it doesn't matter at all because nobody believes that you're going to nuke a defenseless country. Even though we've, like, Japan was not defenseless, but we've done it, you know? Yeah, I I think fundamentally the issue is that there's a technology that now exists, nuclear weapons technology. People know how to make them. I don't think there's any other example of a technology that humanity developed and then opted to forget or opted to erase. It's never happened. I mean, there's a good argument for why this would be the first instance of that happening. But it doesn't square with reality. Like someone somewhere would be keeping the plans or the equations, you know, the science around this. Well, the other thing, Pete, we need that science. We need that science to make nuclear reactors and fusion reactors. I just think we're entering a world where we need alternative energy sources that don't produce carbon. Mm -hmm. Not everybody agrees that nuclear or fusion are the way to go at all. But there's a substantial, substantial contingent of people who know what they're talking about, including, I think, Bill Gates and, and plenty of other people uh, who are saying we need to start building nuclear power plants today. Yeah, I think it's a lesser of two evils argument. Obviously, there's waste, nuclear waste from nuclear power plants. But I think all of our listeners are very familiar with climate change and what the timeline is on that. So... It's a cost-benefit analysis on which is worse, nuclear waste from power plants or 
continued carbon emissions. Yeah, if you're not familiar with it, go back and listen to our episodes on climate change. <laughs> there are several. So full disarmament fundamentally presupposes a level of trust between every powerful country on earth that does not currently exist and ne has never existed in human history. And is not well on its way to existing anytime Doesn't soon. seem like it, yeah. The technology exists. The countries don't trust each other. It's just not realistic, I think, unfortunately, to think nuclear weapons would go all the way away and stay away. You know, unfortunately, Pete, I think the one thing that could cause s such a taboo on the knowledge and the technology that would, you know, require for something like this to happen would be full-scale nuclear war. That might be the one thing that would do it. After that, I think people might think very differently. Well, like rediscovering the laws of gravity might be the first order of business after that. Yeah, it, it might be a moot point. So yeah, prospects for disarmament, it's a nice thing to think about. It's a nice thought experiment. It is apparently a nice treaty that is part of international law now, according to the UN. And I think that is basically where it's going to stay in the realm of international law. You know, there's something to the hope that that treaty could be a first step that applies non-binding, essentially, peer pressure and like aims that in the direction we'd like to see it aim towards reducing nuclear weapons sure. substantially. I mean, perhaps the end point could be that the countries that have nuclear weapons reduce them to a very small number, like enough to be a deterrent but not enough to have them distributed all over and potentially, you know, increasing the likelihood of a mistake. Yeah, I think that would be a great outcome. It would. And perhaps this treaty is a first step towards that when there was zero step towards that before this treaty. No, it's, it's, look, it, I condone <laughs> this treaty existing. It's not a bad thing. And we, we shouldn't like make fun of the countries that have signed up to it. This is a worthy aspiration. It is aspirational. And aspirations are important because they set the tone. They set a goal. And without a goal, it's like, what are you even doing, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay, Pete, I think we're going to leave it there. We have talked about nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament. And we will get back to everybody in two weeks, right? That's right, Steve. We will following that restful week where nothing big is expected to happen. I look forward to it, man. Good talking to you this week. Yeah. Enjoy your week off, buddy. Thanks, dude. Bye. Bye.